in a big way uh, next week. So here are here are the class here are the questions I want you to be kind of starting to think about, uh, and think about it in, in the fact that we've been trying to do it from a different perspective as we're looking at the at the uh, understanding of first century Judaism. Was the cross necessary, or did Gethsemane complete the atonement? If so, what was there about the cross that would bring forgiveness of sins? Could Jesus have defeated death by dying in his sleep, then rising from the dead? And then finally, in other words, why did he need to suffer? at a time when everything symbolically, uh, there was no suffering in the sacrificial animals, but there was suffering on the cross. Was his suffering necessary? Could he have just passed away in his sleep, risen from the dead, and it would have had the same effect? Okay? So, I want those questions kind of tumbling around in your head. We're not trying to get answers yet. Okay? But, but be thinking that as our context okay, for, for today and next week. All right. Now, along with that, then I want to start in an unlikely place. How many of you recognize that? <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. This is the, the ring. It's the one ring from Lord of the Rings. Um. Which one of the brethren quoted Tolkien? Was it Uchtdorf? Yeah. Okay. So that's fair, fair game, right? When uh, J.R.R. Tolkien um, wrote Lord of the Rings, it's interesting what it is that he created. And, and he and C.S. Lewis, of course, were part of an, and an, another author were part of a group that would, uh, they met at a, a regular pub, they talked all the time, they're both, and, and Tolkien was instrumental in bringing C.S. Lewis, not just out of theism, but into, uh, back into Christianity. Um, and he, but he didn't like the fact that C.S. Lewis seemed to be a little bit more over the top and a little bit more overt with like Aslan the Lion in all that. That seemed to be too obvious. He tried to be more subtle in his writing, but it was still very Christian. And, and what he did, Tolkien did, was uh, he, he, uh, he gave us a ring of power. And, and, the, and through his, the three, volume, three volumes of this, what you get is this ring that brings with it power, but it corrupts. And then it keeps getting introduced to a variety of people. And you get to watch the reactions of each one of the people about how they would respond if that ring was offered to them. So you watch it uh, uh, with kings and queens and armies and common people and hobbits and even the, the good guy Gandalf the wizard is offered the ring and what does he do? Don't give it to me. Uh, that I would be too tempted to use it in bad ways. Okay? And so this ring becomes a touchstone for, for everybody that says, how would you deal with, 
with that kind of power? What would you do with that if it was offered to you? And how would it corrupt you, given your personality and how you see the world and, and all that? So it's a very profound, subtle kind of thing where everybody that comes in contact has to look at themselves and say, what would I do? Who am I? What would corrupt me? So I want you to be thinking about that again in, in context. What would corrupt you? <laughs> Where is your temptation? What exactly could be offered to you or suggested to you that you would immediately blow off? That's not, you know, I've never been tempted by cigarettes, for instance. You know, are there other things that would be more subtle that would be harder for me to turn down? Where, so, so in a sense, the ring uh, uh, enabled people to see themselves and what drove them. And what we're going to talk about here is that this very thing happened in this final couple of days of the Savior's ministry. Everybody was revealed to themselves. Okay? How's that for a nice setup? You don't want to know. I'd rather be blissfully ignorant. Yeah. Okay. So so I want so here's the here's kind of the the setup to that then. If we go to Luke 22, this is the moment when, uh, we're jumping way ahead, this is the moment when Judas is leading the mob into Gethsemane, uh, and, and they come and they find Jesus. And Jesus said to the chief priests, officers of the temple, and the elders who were gathered to take him, Did you come out with swords and clubs as though I were a bandit? Remember that he was accusing them of being a den of bandits. They were hiding in the temple and doing their nefarious deeds elsewhere, but that's where they would come to hide. Okay. Each day I was with you in the temple and you did not arrest me. But then he says, and this becomes very important, I think. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Now, with everything that we know is about to happen, we're, we're, here, we're now here at the, at the Last Supper. Those things are going to be going on there. But outside this little room, and beginning to creep into this little room, comes the powers of darkness. If this is the apex of everything the Savior is trying to do, this is the pinnacle by the time we get to Gethsemane and the cross. This will be the great defeat of the powers of darkness. Where would the powers of darkness be right at that moment on Thursday night and Friday morning? Gathering. Building. It is the one last push against the Savior and the plan of salvation. Here comes the powers of darkness. And it's like this slow gathering tsunami of darkness that's going to begin to pour in and it's going to begin to attack. And it's going to begin to attack different people in different ways based on their weaknesses. And what you're going to get to watch is how will each person in the drama here react to this, this uh, gathering gloom as it begins to break over the, the ministry of Jesus. 
And everybody will handle it a little bit differently in their way. Yeah. So this imagery that you're describing is new to me, simply because I, I have always been worried about that little bit of darkness that's bottled up inside of me getting out. You know what you're on? Absolutely. I just, I just, yeah. Well, yeah, what Paul called, called the natural man, there's the earthy man in there. And what happens is as this thing is building and growing in intensity, it finds those weaknesses in everybody and then it's exploiting them, all with a goal towards defeating the plan that's about to be executed. Sister Wilder? Yeah, yeah. They did a. I think I might have mentioned years ago. They did a uh, a survey that is, or a uh, an experiment at, at Berkeley that is that changed all of the ethical rules for psychology experimentation, uh, where they had somebody on the other side of the room, uh, and and they had a person on this side of the room, and they were they were given a dial, and they were told that. Uh, as you begin to rate, turn the dial, it will cause pain in the other room. And they didn't, it, it didn't. There was a person, an actor, on the other side, so it wasn't causing any pain. But the person in this side of the room didn't know that. And they were told, it's okay to go ahead and turn it up to three and four, and you start hearing them going, ah! And they're on the other side then. And then there was like a red section, like you're gonna red line here, like, this might be fatal. And you know what, it's okay now to go ahead and move it into the sevens and eights. And ah, and now they're on the other side and they were surprised. How many people, if they were given permission to do it, would actually put it up into very, very painful and even fatal uh, ranges? And they kind of called this the Nazi gene. You know, that anybody under the right circumstance, they concluded, might do very horrible situations if they felt like it was the right circumstance and for the right reasons. Uh, I would reference Hans Mill uh, and I would reference uh, Mountain Meadows Massacre as two examples where good people might end up doing very evil things. Church basketball. Church basketball. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's right. The only fight that starts with a word of prayer. Yes. <laughs> Look at what happened to New Orleans at Katrina. And, and you know, within a week, people yeah. are killing each other to get the food. Yeah. So I think that's just a humanness. It is. And so, yeah, there, so, so Dan, th there ought to be a certain amount of fear in us. Exactly. There really should be a fear. Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit confused. Did Satan at this point believe that he could thwart the Savior's atonement? Or was Satan's 
understanding that regardless of Savior's atonement uh, would go forth and he was just trying to get as much collateral damage. You hang on to that thought. And then come up with your own conclusion on that. Because on one side we do know that Satan doesn't know the mind of God. But, but in a weird sort of way Satan was required in this drama to do what he did. Okay, so watch watch how this comes watch how this comes down. Yeah. My question is kind of related to that, sisters. I was wondering, in the in the ultimate sacrifice, we only need one lamb. Why there are other little lamb all go into the pit? Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like what's that yeah. for? In, in, what's in the plan? Yeah. She she, she says that the root was really only needed one lamb, but why is it being repeated over and over and over? Hang on to that one. Okay, I like how you're thinking because we should be we should be asking some bigger questions because my fear is always that when we come to these things and we're going to really do this next week a lot is that we have we have quick answers to some of these dilemmas and if, if you begin to see it in a broader picture you're going to find that some of these are not it's not easy to come up with a quick answer we want surety and we want the prescribed response and this isn't going to fit that. This is going to be far messier and it's going to be far more complicated I think than, than we think it would be. Yeah. But in the past the prophet was talking about that. About, about Jesus, about his yeah. We have we have the answers even from the apostles and prophets, right? But the behind it why is this the case? Like the, the real purpose of the cross is not as easy, it's not as easily answered. Was the cross necessary? Okay, we have a quick answer. Why? Well, that's not as easy. Okay? All right, so that said, I want, now, here's how we're going to look at this though. Um, in understanding this slow building storm that's gathering here. How does Satan work? We get this little glimpse of how Satan works when we start looking, if we go to Revelations 12 and we remind ourselves, now there was a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fought back, and we heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God has come. The authority of his Christ, Christ has come. This is the, talking about the second coming, but this also could be the first uh, and, and Golgotha and Gethsemane. How does Satan work, though? How does he do this? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The Hebrew word for Satan is accuser. He works by accusing. And you think, accusing us of what? Okay. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So the accusations will be greater. There will be more. Yeah. So you mentioned the first coming and the second coming, but I think this also has reference to the pre-earth life. 
Oh, uh, yes. And clearly, I think he's accusing us of being incapable of passing the test that our father has set out for us. Perfect. Because how, in other words, what was the war in heaven? What was the argument sounding like in the war of heaven? Was it not a set of accusations against Jehovah about what he was really wanting to do? You really sure he's going to do that? Not going to just leave you in the lurch? Okay. So I, th I think you get a parallel in the king men before they come in here to say Yes. There are a few of noble birth or intelligence who are more capable than the rest of us. Yes. And we're not capable of Somebody's got to take care of the dumb sheep. <laughs> you know? It's all an argument to get us to see our agency to someone else. Yeah. And if we find ourselves that way, we are bound. And here it comes. And you're going to see this all played out. If you see that this is the eternal pattern, pre-existence, uh, first coming, second coming, uh, you're going to watch it played out in, and you're going to watch it be played out through the eyes of the gospel writers who were actually watching this occur. Okay? Now, let's start. So what I thought I would do, one way to do this is as this, as this wave of darkness begins to crash, watch how it hits certain people and watch how each person in the drama handles it differently based on them and their personality. So let, let's pick on the easiest one first, and that would be Judas, right? Uh, they, are, they are settled into their, um, the, the place where they've gone to eat this Last Supper. We talked last time about the fact that uh, we didn't know if this was actually a Passover Seder. Matthew, Mark, Luke says it is. John says it's not. It could be that they are both right because it could be that Jesus chose to celebrate Passover Seder the night before because he knew we, he wouldn't be around for the actual Seder on Friday night. Uh, so anyway, but they are there and they're eating. They're going to celebrate one last meal here together. And John says, before the feast of the Passover, that's what he's saying, it's, he says it's not Passover, but it could have been a Passover celebrated early. <clears throat> Jesus saw that his hour had arrived to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, now the next line should probably be this one. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, that he had come from God and was going to God. That, may, that makes sense. Okay? That's not what John did. Whether this is John, whoever John is at this point, this writing, or whether this is something that was added later, which I don't think so because it seems to be Extend in the earliest manuscripts, apparently. So this seems to be coming from John. Look at what John, the editor, does with this view. He's going to say, uh, he loved his own who were with him in the world. He loved them to the end. Then look what he does. He drops this in. And after dinner, the devil had already entered into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, that he should betray him. In other words, the events that are about to happen, he wants you to see them through the eyes, 
that there is a traitor in the midst and he doesn't want you to forget the fact that there is a traitor sitting right there. Now, why is that? Imp why would he do that? Well, why, why would he do that? Why is he sandwiching that idea between those two? I think he's warning. He's warning that something's going to happen. Sure. And so here it comes. He's going to drop that in. Okay. Now, but he could have put this in at the beginning. What's he saying? Yeah. Yeah, it does. He loved them to the end, comma, including Judas. And watch how far he takes this. Watch how far he takes this. If you, want, if you ever want to encapsulate the gospel and, and the Savior's mission, this, this verse is the Savior's mission in total. In a very, very powerful way. He arose from dinner. He set out his outer clothing and took a towel and tied it around himself. Then he poured water in the basin and began to wash and dry the feet of the disciple with the towel tied around him. Okay? Now, think, think symbolically. What, from a symbolism standpoint, what does he mean when he says... He arose from dinner and set aside his outer clothing. What is that? The world. The world, meaning what? Well, the outer world that was... Okay, but this is the Savior. He's taking off his outer robe. It's mortal. It's his mortality, isn't it? He, what, what's, he, what's he removing? His Jehovah-ness. He's, he's, he's removing his godhood for a moment. He set aside his kingdom in heaven to set aside. This is the incarnation. This is him coming into mortality. He is, he's taken off the robe of godhood and stepped into mortality. That's what that is. Yeah, and what? Yeah, and, do, and then once, once he's taken off this robe and now he's stepped into mortality, then what does he do? Then he poured water into a basin, symbolic of washing, cleansing, okay? And begins to wash and dry the feet of the disciples. And he's going right into servantness. The God of the universe took off his godhood, came into the world, planted himself at the feet of those he loved, and served them, and cleansed them. That's that's pretty powerful statement. And like I say, if you just wanted a, a, a statement about who God was and who Jesus was and what he was trying to do, nothing, nothing that I know of in the Bible matches that. It says it beautifully. But John could have just left it there. But look at what he did. He wants you to see this moment through what eyes? Through Judas's eyes. That's, that's the amazing part about this. He could have left the Judas part out and kind of told it later. He's going to weave 
into this moment, this beautiful experience that is more extensive than we have anywhere else in the scriptures of Jesus washing the Savior's feet. Or it says the Savior washing his disciples' feet. But he's going to do it through the idea that Judas is there and is having his own feet washed. That's amazing. He wants you to see it through that prism. Yeah. To me, the, the, the reality that there's no matter what we are and what our health sacred experience or whatever it is we're doing, there's it could be a Judas. Yeah. The thing is going on in someone's head. Sure. That that within a group there may be a Judas among us. But guess what's happening to the Judas as well as everybody else? He's being served by this God who removed and and descended below all things. Remember what the angels asking Nephi, dost thou know the condescension of all things? No. Here it is. You want if he was going to picture anything in Nephi's mind of Nephi's mind about what that looked like, God descending below all things, there it is. In this culture, in this setting to be washing the feet of the disciples, including Judas. That's it. That including the, those that would betray him, he's washing and cleansing them as much as he can. Yeah. So Nephi does say, I know that he loves his children. Yes, he does. That's right. I don't know the of all. Uh, yeah, he may go, well, I know, like John, that he does. I know this. But man, I don't get the. I mean, wouldn't there be a lot of us that would be like, I'll wash your feet, I'll wash your feet. Oh, it's you, Judas. I'm skipping you. I'll go over here. <laughs> I know what you're up to. No way. <laughs> yeah. Well, John is often referred to as John the Beloved. And it seems like whenever there's anything scripted about love, John, he's, that's, that was him. John is the gospel of love, man. He just, and, and he, again, as we talked about last time, uh, scholars will say that John has the highest Christology. It means that it's the highest he, he is attributing the highest level of godhood in his gospel. And everything that he writes is determined for you to know that Jesus was God. And full of love. This God loves. Fully, completely. Including those that will betray him. Now, lest, lest you can get around that, um, let me grab... And I apologize. There's just so much in here that I wanted to take just a second. John 13. Okay. And I thought I'd just kind of quickly point, point this out. Because all through this story, and it's going to... And, and, and it's interesting that John leaves out two important things... At this moment, half, the, half of John's gospel is the last week. But John leaves out actually three important items that are there in the other gospels that isn't in John. One's the nativity. He doesn't, he doesn't include the nativity. Where does the gospel of John begin? In the... Angels. <laughs> wow. Okay. 
Go back to the, what is the first verse in the Gospel of John? In the beginning was who? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John doesn't start with the nativity. He starts with the pre-existence. That's where this story begins. Okay? But he leaves out Bethlehem and he leaves out the nativity. John also leaves out the sacrament, the breaking of the bread and, and the wine, right? And amazingly enough, what else does John leave out that's in the other Gospels? Gethsemane. The God of love leaves out Gethsemane in John's Gospel. And you, could, and, and you could ask yourself, why did he do that? And I would tell you, I have no idea. <laughs> Except that there's going to be some other things that he wants to make sure that are emphasized even more. And so when we're going to get this great moment of washing of feet that it happens in John 13. Listen to what John keeps introducing in the middle of this. Okay? Um, verse 10. Jesus uh, replies to Peter who doesn't want to have his feet uh, washed. He who has been washed does not need to be washed further except for his feet, but he is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. Parentheses. For he knew who was about to betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. John's going to go, this is talking about Judas, and I will let you know over and over. Okay? I want you to not forget Judas is in the room. Jesus is going to say, in 12, they'd wash his feet. He puts his outer clothing back on. Here comes the Godhood. Reclines. You know why I've done this. Um... I wash your feet. You give me an example. Uh, 18. But I do not speak to you all. I know whom I have chosen. But so that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me lifts up his heel against me. He now starts quoting the Psalms to the apostles. Now, let me, let me stop here for a second. When it comes to the Old Testament, as Latter-day Saints, we pretty much stink at the Old Testament. <laughs> we're not conversant. We're not very good. We don't understand it. We try and get through it as quickly as possible, get the little moral stories and get the heck out of there. Okay? But for a first century Jew, what was their scriptures? The Old Testament, the Psalms. The Proverbs, they knew these. This is what they studied. This is what they read. This is what they were conversant with. They knew their Old Testament. So when Jesus is going to start throwing out little drops like he just did, this comes right out of Psalms, what, they, they would know the rest of this. I'm telling you, they would. This is their world. This is like, if I, if I mention to a group of Latter-day Saints, uh, let me, uh, I'm going to mention something about the Tree of Life. You'd go, oh, we know that story. You know, oh, Lehi, yeah, tree of life. Oh, yeah, there's this. It's, it's a context we get. You mention this stuff to Jews, they get the Psalms. So let me tell you what we just referenced. He did it quickly. Um, 
John is going to say, uh, I do not, John is having Jesus say, I do not speak to you all, but so that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me lifts up his heel against me. Now, quickly, what do you think that idiom would mean, lifting up your heel against somebody? It's, you're kind of stepping on them, right? Okay. Remember when uh, during the Iraq War that uh, George Bush uh, dropped in on on uh, the the troops, and and one of the journalists I think throws a shoe at him. It, it's a it's a um, it's a mark of extreme uh, dis disrespect because it's about shoes and feet. So that's why the washing of feet is such an amazing deal. But if you're going to lift up your heel. But I want you to see the, I want you to see the psalm that Jesus was referring to in talking about um, Judas. And it's pretty amazing. I went back and looked at it. And I thought, wow. This, if, you're, if, you're a Jew, if you're a Jewish person, this is, this is the verse they're hearing. My enemies say with malice. When will, when will he die and be forgotten? <laughs> wow. Isn't that great? My visitor speaks falsehood. He gathers slander in his heart. Think about the accusations, the accuser. He goes out and spreads it abroad. All who hate me whisper against me. Here are the accusations of Satan, they imagine the worst for me. A vile disease has poured into him. What did we just find out in the, what did we just find out about Judas? Satan entered into his heart. Okay? You see the imagery on here? It's awesome. A vile disease has been poured into him. He will never get up from where he lies. And then, even my close friend whom I trusted, the one who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Wow. So that's, that's Psalm 41. That's what he's referring to in this sense. So in this overall experience, I might have been something like Joseph Smith and the three witnesses where Mark Harris wasn't prepared. And so they couldn't, they couldn't understand all the stuff that Jesus was telling them because there was one of their midst. Just messing with them. Yes. I think that would say something about after Judas leaves that then he begins to... Lighten up? Yeah. Yeah, hold on to that. Okay, so, okay, so that is... Um, verse 21... Of, of John 13. Jesus said these things and was troubled in spirit, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. There's that sense of having that betrayer in the midst. And, and now look what happens. The disciples begin to look at one another in doubt as he spake. One of the, now, this is one of those moments where I believe with all my heart that, that the author of John, probably John the Beloved, 
was an eyewitness. There are some little items that happen here that give you an idea that whoever this was is not just getting this second hand. This is an eyewitness account. The first one we talked about last time when we have... Um, when uh, Mary is, open, is anointing Jesus with the spikenard. And then we get that little glimpse from a memory hook that says, and the smell of the ointment was smelled in the whole... I mean, that's an eyewitness. It says, I remember smelling that ointment. That would come from an eyewitness. Here's a second one, and it's really subtle. There was one of his disciples, verse 23... There was one of his disciples, the one whom he loved, reclining to eat at Jesus' side. This is where we get an idea that maybe this was a Roman triclinium where they're actually all reclining. So one is like leaning in front of him uh, so that they're kind of leaning against each other kind of thing. They're all on couches, okay? There was one of his disciples, the one whom he loved, reclining to eat at Jesus' side. Now, listen, listen to this little subtle thing. So Simon Peter nodded to him, to the disciple, to ask who, uh, concerning whom he spoke. It's this little bit of a, it's this little bit of a thing. If you can just picture Peter going. <laughs> and John going. As I'm leaning next on, on, on Jesus' breast, I can kind of lean up and go, Who is it? Because <laughs> he could ask him without, without arousing everybody else. And I just love that Peter's probably on the other side of the table going, <laughs> Who is it? Who is it? <laughs> that is the mark of an eyewitness account who saw that interaction or was involved in that. That's awesome. That is so great. Um, who is it? Uh, Jesus answered, uh, it's the one to whom I have I give this piece of bread after I have dipped it. That's more of a common thing where they're, they're handed out. Um, now, then Jesus said to him, this is uh, verse 27, after he took the bread, Satan entered into him. It's an idiom. Uh, Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. This is where it starts. He's given permission to begin the crucifixion process. Because they still wouldn't have known where, where they were hiding. Judas, go tell them where we are. What you do, do quickly. No one at the meal knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought it was Judas had the money bag. Uh, remember John believes that he had the money bag and he was a thief. Uh, Jesus just told John yeah. who it was. Yeah, he did. But but it, everybody, nobody else heard it. That's why I say it's so, just this quiet thing. So he could say to Judas, without betraying what he was going to do, no one at the meal knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that Judas had the money bag. Jesus, and that he might have said, go and buy what's needed for the feast. Uh... 30, after he took the piece of bread, symbolically meaning, probably meaning the sacrament. It's the closest that we have to the sacrament in the book of John. He departed quickly and it was night. Okay, so you get, there it is. So for Judas, 
as as this as this wall of darkness is starting to close in around around Jesus, where does the where does this darkness go after Judas? It is what? He leaves but why? How did, how did Satan tempt him? He was a thief. It was about money. That would be his weakness and that would cause him to act. Now it might also have been, I want to get Jesus to act. But all, all we have, if you ask John, John would say, no, he was a thief. It was about the money. Whether it was completely or not. That was John's belief. Okay? So that's Judas. Alright, so who else is affected by this oncoming darkness as it, as it comes in? And years ago, did anybody see the movie uh, The Fog? This old movie, that, and, and uh, she's in the lighthouse and this fog is rolling in. That's what I keep picturing. It's like there's this evil fog just starting to roll in and it's coming out of Caiaphas's house and it's working its way down uh, to him. Okay, so here's the next one. So, here, so who else is going to be affected by this? Yeah, here comes the disciples. Let's see how they're affected by this. Going after specifically their own particular weaknesses and personalities and struggles. Okay? Satan is nice enough to personalize our temptations. He's really nice that way. Because the Son of Man, and I forgot to put what verse this is, because the Son of Man goes, it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Verse 23, hopefully you guys will find this. I think this is Luke. And they began to question one another who it might be among them who was about to do this. So they're hearing the betrayal thing. Jesus had been talking about betrayal. They start talking among themselves who might be betraying. Now, but as the fog is rolling in, look at where it took the disciples to. Okay? They went from... Are you going to be betrayed? No, I'm not going to betray him. Are you going to betray him? No, I'm not going to betray him. Okay. Now, that would naturally go to the next step, which, be, which would be and, there be, and there was contention among them regarding who was greater. <laughs> well, you know, if Jesus is going to be a king and this is going to be his kingdom, wow. I'd like to be the minister of defense. That, that would be cool. I would like to be. Or I should be on his right hand, and, and you could be on his left, but this is, this, if this is a kingdom, who's going to be greater? He's going he's to elevate the greatest ones. Okay? And so there, there begins to be, in the middle of all this, there begins to be contention among them and jealousy about who's greater. This is their weak spot. Okay? Now, so it was Luke. I was right. Now, Jesus' response to their temptation is this. You are the ones who have stayed with me in my trials. I covenant with you even as my Father covenanted with me. Uh, that ought to resonate with some of us. I now covenant with you. That's what he's saying. A kingdom so that you will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and quit worrying about who's in charge here and who's going to be the greatest because 
you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So quit worrying about this. Now, here comes the next, here comes the next phrase in that though. And let me just suggest in doing this that um, you're going to see a difference in what different versions of different translations, how they see it. And I don't know that it, it's easy to say one is righter than the other one. <laughs> other than the fact that each one gives you a different viewpoint on this and you're going to have to see what resonates with, with you. Okay? So let me, let me do this. So here's let me start with the next verse. Let me do it in the King James Version. And, and it's the one that is very, very familiar to us, and I can't count how many times we have used this. The Lord says, Simon, Simon, Peter, behold, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Okay? Now, from a Sunday school kind of boxed answer, we've got every time we go through this, how do we how do we generally frame how how we put this? Jesus said, "When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren." So then, when do, when do we know when he was uh, strengthened? And when do we know he was converted? he receives the Holy Ghost. He wasn't converted until he Pentecost, until he receives the Holy Ghost. Okay? And then we'll, then a lot of times with that we'll say, and then by the way, you know, of course, that Simon denied the Savior three times. So then he gets an opportunity to make up for that when? Yeah, the Sea of Galilee, and he's going to say three times to him what? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. My, you know, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Okay. Yeah, so he actually gets to affirm him three times. That's nice. And, and so we're able to say there's this nice symmetry. And we love that symmetry. of, But, but over and over and over we're going to say that Jesus is going to say, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. He wasn't yet converted. And he couldn't have been converted till the Holy Ghost comes. And that's at Pentecost. Okay. And guess what? That might be true. That might be true. But I want you to look at the other versions and then I want to challenge this just a little. Yeah? This concept of conversion is not a single thing, though. I mean, there, all of us have a certain level of conversion and we have more conversion to receive or obtain. And so he's talking about the specific mighty change of heart that comes with the flood of the Spirit. So I'm sure Peter was converted to knowing that Jesus was the Christ. He said... Doing the best that he could, but, but his ability to connect directly with God and pull that in and use that power to do the work of God was something that was still uh, it, it was still embryonic for him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, when we actually apply 
that newer knowledge, that newer understanding. We, we see that as conversion. Okay? Now, as you look at this, though, sometimes we're so busy to get to this verse, we forget the one to above it. Right? Simon, Simon, Satan desires to do what? Sift you as wheat. Now, think about from a first century standpoint. How do you sift wheat? Okay. So they're going to take, here, here's everything, the wheat's all come in, and then we're going to get in, and then we're going to throw it up in the air, right? And, and we're going to count on a breeze coming through, and what's going to happen? What, what, what will the shaft do? It blows away. It's lighter. It drifts off. And the wheat does what? Falls back down, right? So what happens is in the sifting of wheat, they're throwing it up in the air. The wheat is scattered all over the place, but then it comes down and the chaff is blown off. Okay? Got that image? Okay, now. So here's, here's the Wayman version of this. Simon, Simon, Satan sought for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you so that your faith may not fail. And then, and when you have returned, strengthen your brothers and sisters. How might, we have say, how might we say when you have returned? When you have repented. Does that change it just a little bit? And it actually fits a little bit with the sifting, doesn't it? What's going to happen the night that the Savior is taken and then he's going to be under trial and then he's going to go through the crucifixion, torture and, and suffering crucifixion? What happens to the disciples? They're being scattered. They're being thrown in all directions. Now, has some of the chaff blown off? Simon, or uh, Judas Iscariot, is being blown off. Maybe others blown off. Who's going to come? Who's going to return down? The heavy, the, 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 those that are the strong ones, right? The, the ones with the most meat. Kind of thing are the ones that come back down. But it doesn't mean that they're not scattered. It doesn't mean that there's not a moment when they're flying through the air, not sure where they're going to land. And that's exactly what happened that night. They were sifted, they were thrown into the air. And you didn't know who was going to land where. And he's saying to him, Simon, when you return from your being thrown in the air, then do something for me. Now, this is one of those times I actually like another version better than his. Yeah. Isn't this like us? I mean, it gives us so much hope. Because don't we do things wrong? Don't we make mistakes? Aren't we shocked? Aren't we? Isn't that true? Things? It feels like, oh my gosh, this is a disciple who knew Christ, and he. Yeah. I mean, what happens if you're somebody that's just kind of, maybe, maybe you're, a, you're a single mom and you're hanging on with, with your kids and everything and your son is really needing help because his dad is not around and you're really counting on and hoping for uh, the bishop or the young men's president 
uh, to step in and, and they completely fail at their thing. And your son goes off the deep end because the ward didn't do what you hoped it would do. At that moment, what happens to your faith? I was counting on this and it didn't happen. Or I'm doing fine and then somebody in the ward offends me. Or I'm trying to serve a calling and it's not working. Or I read something online about Joseph Smith and I'm thrown, I'm thrown into the air. And there are, I think there's a lot of times we are being sifted. We're being thrown. Okay? It's part of our refining process. I think it is part of a refining process. And it's also the moment, but there will be chaff that is blown out. There are going to be those that maybe weren't very solid in the church for whom that wind, their, their roots were never there, and they kind of get blown aside for a while. Okay? Now, our job, by the way, is to go find the chap and bring him back. <laughs> we don't want to lose those guys either. But I think there are those times when our emotional lives or our spiritual lives get <clears throat> churned and thrown into the air. Okay? Now, I happen to like this one. It's actually the NRSV version. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. When I went back and looked at that word sought, the, the Hebrew or the Greek word on that is more like ask for permission. He is at, he's, he's putting in a request. He's making a claim outwardly. I want to sift them is, is what that Greek word is what John originally intended in that word. And I, I thought Wayman went a little light on this. Yeah, because that's, that's what it means. Yeah. I'm, it's kind of like with Job when Satan. Uh, kind of like that. Kind of like Job. Him. Right. I want to sift them, but I have prayed, but I have. Uh, but look at the other part of this. Okay. Up here we were talking about you guys are all arguing, and don't worry about it. You're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift who? All of you like wheat. This version looks at it and says, this statement was not to Simon only. This was to all of them. And it makes sense in context because he was just talking about all of them were contending and arguing. That makes plenty of sense. But then he brings it back around. But I have prayed for you that you, that your own faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned back, Simon, strengthen your brothers who were also blown to the wind. I like that version. It resonates with me a lot, that they also were going to be sifted. So if you look at those three verses, the first verse is the accusation. Yes. People are not perfect, therefore I claim them. The second verse is the Lord's intercession. These are mine. I have paid the Beautiful. Once you have done that, now come back yeah. and strengthen everybody else. I am still looking for you for leadership, but they will all be sifted and they will all be tempted and they will all be thrown to the wind and I need you to step up in my absence and bring them back. Okay? So, th that... So, in a sense, then, as this wave of darkness is crashing, 
We, we think about it hitting Peter, but I want you to think about it hitting all of the, the disciples. Because now you're getting the contention that exists among all of these guys. Yeah? You know, you talk about the sifting, the example you gave, you know, someone else who believed what I thought they should do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we're asked if we really believe that Jesus is our Savior, or we really believe this, yes, we say that. When you get through with some of the sifting, you find out what you really believe. Yeah. And so, I, and I don't think about the sifting. You would some maybe everybody else would be different than me. I'm not sure I would have faced the reality of what I really believe to the extent that I needed to. Joan, the uh, Relief Society president, <clears throat> is talking about how we may say that we believe, and we believe in the Savior, and then when hardships come, the question is, do we really? <laughs> Do we really say, I, I hope that you would be there for me. I hope that you wouldn't let this happen. I have tried to do the right things. What happened? How come I'm still being, going through trials and now I'm being, I feel like I'm being thrown in the air and I hope I come back kind of thing. Uh, and maybe that we think the sifting. And, and unfortunately, a lot of times we have kind of a Protestant swing sometimes to us where we're going to believe that God uh, is really kind of angry at us and so he wants to punish us and the only way that he can teach us lessons is to give us trials it's a very Calvinistic kind of approach you know you're having your you got cancer because you just wouldn't learn patience and dang it the only way I could get you patience is to give you cancer well you're fine you never did trust me very much so I'm going to have you break your leg so you really have to rely on everybody else to bring you in meals because you were so thick headed that the only thing that will get through your head is breaking your leg <laughs> now if you weren't so hard headed I wouldn't have to have broke your leg <laughs> you know well that sounds dumb but man do we do it what did I do I didn't I tried okay all right what do we got? Oh, about, almost out of time. Okay. Oh, okay. Now, John then is going to give us an idea of pruning. Because now, about everybody else, here comes the waves. Every branch that does not bear fruit in me, he takes away. Everyone that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear fruit. Yes, that too. Yes, more fruit. Uh, one of my earliest, my, one of my earliest memories, my, my mom loved roses. And we had, next to our house, we had this massive amount of rose bushes. And they would grow and they were, they were pretty spectacular. And, but every year, like clockwork, my, my dad, who grew up on a farm, uh, would come in in the early spring and he would just whack the heck out of the... I mean, he would like cut them down to nubbins. And I remember over and over, every year my mom would come out and she would go, Arlo, what did you do to my roses? <laughs> they're all... They're never... And he would say, it's okay. They, they will come back. No, look at them. They're all gone. You know, and by midsummer we would have this massive thing of rose, and then and then he would cut them down the next, and we would start over the whole thing. You know, it's like my mom had selective memory uh, that roses come back. You know, and this pruning process, uh, we get that that idea it's going to bear more fruit. 
And then, and, I, and what I did then is I, went, I wanted to go through and I've selectively taken verses to say, here's what Jesus is going to say to the disciples and to everyone else. So I, I'm just, this is a collection of verses that now come next. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. The one who hates me hates my father. They will put you out of synagogues. But the hour will come when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. I believe that a number of the men that climbed those stairs at Carthage uh, with gun in hand believed that they were doing God a service by, by taking out Joseph Smith. I really do. And, and, and while Saul was holding the, the coats and he was zealous for the law, which meant making sure that Christians were being tortured and killed. Yeah. every terrorist nowadays. And every yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because the ruler of this world is condemned. That's why all this happens. Who does who is Satan or Jesus saying is the ruler of the world? Satan. Okay. So, this this wave of darkness would then spread to the disciples, and then it would spread to everyone else. We were talking yesterday, uh, when we get to, uh, uh, when we start talking about Paul's little journey uh, this next spring, uh, and we get to the point where uh, Nero uh, is watching Rome burn, and it starts in the shops, and then it kind of spreads out near the Colosseum, and it's spreading out from there. And then who does he say, how, how come Rome is burning? It's the Christians. So then they attacked the Christians for that. Okay, And the Jews. They went after the Jews too. So, Alright. And the time we've got remaining. I'm just going to pose this as a question. I don't think I've got time to jump through this a lot. But just let me plan a thought. When some people leave the church we might tend to say they have pruned themselves out. Uh, maybe they just wanted to sin. Maybe they just got too educated. Maybe they're spiritually lazy. We come up with a lot of reasons why people leave. <coughs> but sometimes, how are some people pruned out due to poor pruning? Sometimes those of us that were supposed to be involved in taking care of the trees didn't do a very good job of taking care of the weaker limbs or those that are struggling. And I uh, don't automatically assume that that was their fault. Okay. All right. So, time remaining. Uh, i got left here. Oh, my... Okay. I'm going to hop over this. Okay. Jewish leaders. Here's the last gang. Uh, 
as this wave is coming, here comes the darkness. The ones that it would then affect kind of the most outwardly, we might see, is the Jewish leaders. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered in council and said, What shall we do because this man does many miracles? If we leave him to continue like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. This is Caiaphas. What should we do? And then Caiaphas, the, the appointed high priest, does a little prophesying and he doesn't know what he's saying. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better that one man might die for the people that the entire nation to be destroyed. Amen. <laughs> Very true. Very. That would be Luke. No. Can you ask a question? I don't understand why you're saying that um, and the Romans will come and take this place and our nation. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, part, good question. Why, why would they be saying that? A couple of reasons. One is that if you look at, if you look at Jewish history, uh, there's a whole series starting from about 40 B.C. and it'll go all the way through to about 140 A.D. There's a series of Messianic leaders that keep showing up and claiming to be sometimes the Messiah, but all, always it's going to be King David. It's kind of it's the King David that would be uh, that was promised would return. If you look in Jeremiah, if you look in Zechariah, we're waiting for the new King David to show up, and he will cast off all the enemies, and he will become the new king. So whenever they're claiming these these different leaders, they come through and different revolts. They were always going to be the the threat of a new king, and in some cases. Uh, I was just reading one last night. It's uh, uh, 20 BC. There was another group out of Galilee, and they seemed to all be coming out of Galilee. That they believed that they were the next King David, uh, and they hold themselves up in some caves uh, up above Sepphoris and up above Magdala. And the Romans had to had to lower down armies from the top of the mountain down the cliffs to attack these guys in the caves. Uh, and, so, and it's kind of a, a lesser Masada, but still. But they, they believed they were kings. So if somebody's going to roll in now and start doing all these things, the belief not just of that Messiah, but also of his followers, is that they would be the king that would overthrow Caesar. So one of the things in their, in their kind of trying to protect the nation would be, we have to put down these revolts, otherwise the Romans will rise up and kill us. In the, fa in the, uh, in the Upper Galilee, in that revolt, uh, they crucified 2,000 people all along the road leading to Nazareth and down into to Magdala, down to the, the Sea of Galilee. And so there was a very clear idea that says, if we mess with the Romans, we will all be crucified uh, and so we've got to defend us by getting rid of Jesus. 
That's pretty much what happened around 60 uh, when they came and destroyed the temple. They, they killed tens of thousands. They hauled tens of thousands off into slavery back to... It'll happen, yeah, from 67 to, to 70. Yeah, okay, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you can see the justification of their feelings about, let's get rid of this guy. Right, you know? absolutely. So obviously, for other people, don't we see other uh, Pentecostal creatures right now that we are looking at them going... They're way out, and at the same time, they're really not. Yeah, they're they're doing it based on some things that they believe, right? Right. So, so there is this, and then finally, by the way, the other element to this is not just the fact that it might be a king rising up. That's why Pontius Pilate had a little bit of a, uh, not a sense of humor, but certainly some irony, to say, you know, that I'm going to crucify Jesus, and then what am I going to put above his head? King King of the Jews. This is what happens to people who think they are the king of the Jews. They get crucified. And yes, there will be people on his right hand and on his left. And they will be thieves and they will be crucified just like him. So it's pretty pretty intense as far as that goes. Uh, The other thing that I would say too is that from from the Jewish standpoint, uh, and we've talked about this, why would they stone adulterers? Why did they think death was an appropriate attack on somebody sinning because we have to remove the sin in our midst otherwise armies come and destroy nations that's why Laman and Lemuel think it's okay to maybe murder their father because he just created a temple and he's, and he's doing burnt sacrifices in the desert that isn't in the Jerusalem temple so it's okay for Laman and yet they believe they're doing God's work to try and kill Lehi one bad asshole. Yeah. And, and it will spoil everything. Right. Right. Okay. All right. So. so yeah. Let's see. All right. So, a couple of final notes here. Uh, I, I, if you can begin to ultimately look at this. <coughs> In the ancient world, symbolism was much less about what you understood intellectually. It wasn't something that was taught. Symbolism was something that you physically did. You performed a sacrifice, a meal, a cleansing. You wore different clothing. Symbolism was something that you did. In in the church, one of the reasons why sometimes people have a hard time coming from sacrament meeting, where we keep ritual to a very simple kind of thing, to the temple... Where, where we are doing symbolism in a big way, that's a big jump. It's out of, our, it's out of the, the way that we do things in Judaism. And so when it comes to the Last Supper, when it comes to everything that's now going to happen, uh, the ritual cleansing is all about doing symbolism uh, at this point. So rituals acted out help them see the full power of the lesson being taught. All right. That said, oh boy, there's all kinds of good stuff here. Okay. So, well, this is really good stuff. Okay, so, make sure you go back and look at the uh, PowerPoint. I know, I do, I do, I do. Um, All right, so, let, let me... So with that as a backdrop, and, you're, and I want you to see that this growing, gathering storm is going to play a major role in our discussion next week. 
But let me just remind you again about the questions you're going to think about. Was the cross necessary? Or did Gethsemane complete the atonement? If so, what was there about the cross that brought forgiveness of sins? Paul is all about the cross and forgiveness of sins. Could the Savior have defeated death by dying in his sleep, then rising from the dead? Death would have still been defeated. In other words, why did he need to suffer? For instance, the sacrificial lambs aren't made to suffer. Okay? So as we na- so next week as we talk about uh, the uh, trial and, and the cross, uh, I want you to kind of keep these things in mind. Uh, about because this is going to be some of the understanding behind it and I don't think you can see it without seeing the gathering storm of the accuser gathering behind and driving all of this and I leave that with you in Jesus name Amen Uh, one one last question clarifying even though it's Veterans Day you're still meeting we are we will be here it's actually a good time to be here so okay Father, we are so grateful for the lessons that we've learned this day and 